Oh my God, I am so excited. I don't even know where to start as this is one of my very favorite episodes of my very favorite shows. So please excuse when I go into great detail surrounding the scene, you know what I'm talking about. And if I giggle throughout it, I just can't help it. I love it so much. Besides that scene, of course, we will discuss inclusive language, sleep paralysis, and the joke from the show that was hidden away from me for decades. So without further ado, we present A Little Romance. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go, I hope you know you'll always be. The episode opens outside the girls' home before we join Sophia, who is making her way into the kitchen with a suitcase. While it is already packed with a few articles of clothing, she's packing it full of her canned clam sauce. All of this while singing, and I use that term very, very loosely when it comes to the sounds Sophia makes, either O Solo Mio, which is a Neapolitan song from 1898, which was attributed to composer Eduardo de Cupa. But years later, it was discovered that the year before he released, or whatever was done in the late 1800s, O Solo Mio, he had purchased a bundle of songs from a fellow composer, Alfredo Mazzucci, and O Sole Mio was one of them. Drama! Sophia might be more of an Elvis fan and is violently humming 1960s It's Now or Never, which used O Sole Mio, as they would say in the 90s, as a sample. Just listen to how Elvis just used the music. It's almost like he was appropriating it or something. Dorothy enters the kitchen to find her mother stashing her sauce. Dorothy is dressed in a sweater that has the silhouette of a paper doll's with a huge neck allowing for her yellow-collared shirt to clash in the best 80s way with her light gray or now creating the purple rule where at least one character has to be in a variation of purple for every scene. I'm going to go with a very light purple. As Dorothy inquires as to what her mother is doing, Sophia is slightly annoyed. Like, what do you think I'm doing? Dorothy points out that she doesn't need to take the food on the plane, the plane she's taking to visit her son Phil, to which Sophia scoffs. The plane, no, this is for the visit. This is to sustain Sophia while she visits the home of her daughter-in-law that isn't exactly known for her cooking. As the pickiest eater you will ever meet, I relate to this on a very deep level. Many times I have gone shopping before a trip just to make sure I could survive if I couldn't find anything to eat. Sophia is dressed how, in my heart, I wish we did still dress to travel, but in my waist, I'm still going with, yes, sweatpants for a flight is more than appropriate. She's in a cute little power suit. It's bright pink with a white blouse. At the top of the blouse is a huge bow hanging down. It is a classic look. Dorothy comes to her sister-in-law's defense, saying she's too busy working and being a mother. But here are the bombshells about both of those pieces of information. They have 10 children. 
and she is a welder, which is pretty cool and probably flash dance inspired, gender non-conforming, and pretty cutting edge for 85. For those wondering, Flashdance was a 1983 film in which a lady welder wants to become a professional dancer. Sophia has finished packing and is ready to go. While Dorothy tries to get Sophia more excited to go, she mentions a horrific situation. She specifically says, The six boys have given up their room for you. Six boys. If they are in their room alone and not a crib or nursery, let's say they're all over three years old, maybe the boys were back to back, so they're only a year or two apart, we're talking an age range of, what, three to 13? Except Sophia is going because it's one of the boys' graduation. But it's not high school graduation, it's dog grooming school, which would be post-high school. So he's, what, 20? Well, we learn later, he's actually 22, living at home, in a room with his five brothers. The smells. The thought of the smells. Six preteen and pubescent and adult boys in one room. No thank you. Did you ever have to share a room with a sibling? From the ages of baby mm. to eight, seven, eight years old, I shared a room with my sister. Yeah. Really? Yeah, we in the little house we grew up in until we moved to what I consider the death house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we had, we shared a room. Yeah, and we had. It and was, she's what? Two years older than you? Uh, ooh, boy, four, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was a baby, and she was four. So yeah. Wow. Um, how was that? I never had to, which is shocking for how small my house was growing up. But it didn't bother me just because that was always how it was. We had bunk beds when I was uh, oh, little. Oh, fun! And then when we got, I got a little bit older. They, you know, they were the kind that separate, so they were next to each other. And I think, you know, we would torment each other, but also we, I think we had fun just like talking to making each other laugh. And stuff. Right. I, think. I, I think bet it was, that. Do you think yeah. that that helped you guys bond as siblings like do you think you're you were closer than other siblings because of that i think so and my sister always just adored me from when I, the moment i came home i was a baby and yeah she was just all about me so it was like a, i think it was a dream to have like a little her little brother that even though she i mean she just never left me alone <laughs> good lord <laughs> drove me crazy oh because she loved you. She did so much. Still does. <laughs> Hi, Amy. I love you, sister. My first best friend. <laughs> the implications of the age range and the the room situation is really, really upsetting. And her talking, I'm sorry, Sophia talking about Phil, was that last episode? Yes. How she, the one kid she makes excuses for or doesn't make excuses for. Yeah, it was like a real, I mean... Uh, just a, a tease of what was to come. And there is no more idea. to come the, the, that you don't even know about. I'm so excited. Oh. Yeah, he's like her sort of disappointing child, but not because he's the baby boy. But then he went and had 10 kids. And she's, you know, she's Sophia. She's old school. She's kind of offended that the daughter-in-law is a welder instead of like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. She's got this. She And she, uh, well, that made it sound like she's the breadwinner. Is that? Kind of, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a lot. Work. You know, I don't know if they ever touch on like his job. We learn about his personal life, which I'm going to not spoil because I know you don't know. But yeah, yeah, I don't think they ever touch on uh, on a job. Interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm sure. I would I'm hope sure. so with ten kids, unless he's home with the kids. Because let's say the oldest one is 22, and then 10 years, the youngest could possibly be 12, and that's if it's nonstop. If she was pregnant for like 10 years. It's horrific, all of it. 
Sophia is not impressed with her grandson's accomplishments, so she begrudgingly grabs her suitcase. Before she can leave, Blanche is coming in the door in a stunning V-neck sweater, purple of course, and light pants. She has great news. She has come up with a wonderful plan for meeting men a CPR class. Sophia isn't sure Blanche's bedroom could handle more men without the installation of a turnstile. Fun fact, the owner of the chain of grocery stores, the Piggly Wiggly, a Mr. Clarence Sanders, is credited with creating the turnstile. You get a patent on that? I don't know. I'll add in later (laughs) either a weird sounding yes or no for the listener. (laughs) When I find... I, I think it out. was more like, that, yeah, that he had done so many things at his grocery stores and he created all of the, like, checkout, like, he Accidental kind of... Accidental innovations? Yeah, he, like, created grocery stores as we know them, basically. Accidental innova- innovations is a good podcast yes. premise, so anyone can Trademarked. take that, run with it. <laughs> uh, I have an idea about the color purple Ooh. Uh, appearing in the show. I think it's generally seen as a symbol of royalty. And I wonder oh. if that is like a thematic thing or to, to show that they are how, how they are and how they think of themselves. They are golden girls. So, of course, they'd wear royal colors. I really like that. I Thank you. I genuinely think like, oh, it's the 80s and a lot of purple was around. But if you really look, every scene, there's at least one person in purple. It's not the same with red, yellow, orange, like any other color. And I don't know that they put that much effort into it, but I really like the idea that maybe they did. That's pretty cool. As Dorothy's interest is piqued by Blanche's idea, she soon realizes that Blanche wasn't just going and flirting with the fellow classmates. She had actually signed up to be the practice dummy, which isn't the term they used, but I wish they had. So many good zingers just ripe for the picking. For the record, they don't use people for CPR classes for so many obvious reasons. As Dorothy points out, there is nothing special about Blanche having a bunch of people blow into her mouth, as that's what she did at the bar at the last Super Bowl. Rose enters the room in a stunning teal and polka-dotted dress. There's a funny audience moment here where you get a woot from someone. It's only for a second, but it's a reminder of one of the reasons I think this show can be a favorite even 30 years after it ended. There aren't those time-capsuled audience reactions. When I think of those woohoos and ooh, it's very married with children. Those reactions kind of keep the show in the 90s. I don't know if it was just the more refined palette of us Golden Girls fans and audience members, or if the audience director that managed them happened to keep it from happening. But either way, I do appreciate it. Blanche compliments Rose, saying that the polyester that her dress is made from could almost pass for silk. Rose bites back, pointing out that it is actually silk. Blanche, ever the kind friend that can just let things be, says, yeah, and Cheryl Teagues actually buys her clothes at Sears. Cheryl Teagues was considered one of the first supermodels. She broke records by being on the covers of Sports Illustrated and Time magazine multiple times and with her huge contract with CoverGirl. She is most recognized by her classic pink bikini poster from the late 70s, where she's wearing a tiny pink bikini, has one hand on a hip and the other leg is just kind of like open. It's a classic and you know it when you see it. Anyway, the Sears joke comes in because with all of her fame, Cheryl was offered a clothing line with Sears. She signed on, and the power of having her name attached to the brand brought the store over a billion dollars and basically saved it. 
But Sears has kind of always been known as being maybe not where you would go for nice clothes. So why would anyone actually believe that this very rich, very famous woman that could wear anything by any designer would actually settle for Sears? Sears really should have gone with the slogan of settle for Sears. Yeah. I bought school clothes at Sears. Why? Cute and cheap. Me? Mervyn's boy. Oh, I was Me, a Mervyn's girl still too. <laughs> JC Penny man. Almost rips to um, JC Penny. Yeah. You're going to have to move on to being a Coles boy. Dorothy changes the subject with a very silly and cartoonish, where are you going? And a bobble of the head. Rose casually mentions she's just going out with a friend from work, the same friend she's been seeing for weeks now. So she needs to spill it. Who is this mystery friend? Rose giddily explains they met at the grief center where he is a practicing psychiatrist. Much like with the transplant episode when Rose mishears Blanche and thinks she's the one dying, Sophia overhears Blanche's Rose is seeing a psychiatrist. Do I even need to finish the joke? I feel like there could have been a lot of variations, like, I hope he's cheap, or I hope he's hard of hearing, or is that enough people working with her? Do you have any that could have... Should be a lobotomist. Ah, nice. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> Should be a phlebotomist. Oh, well, shouldn't she be seeing a vet? No. It's just cruel. Well, because she saw a vet before. Oh, anyway. that's true. Sophia is ready to leave for the airport, which is in the same direction Rose is headed. I really appreciate how casual Dorothy is with this change of plans. There was no one watching a clock or stressing about leaving. It was just time to go. I know you loved that, Coco. <laughs> That's how I like to travel. Like, what? Uh, yeah, I guess we should head out. A casual ride to the airport is not a thing that can ever happen to me. <laughs> you have, I'm going to talk about sleep later, but you have stress dreams about the airport for crying out loud. All the time. And I mean all of the time. I'm either rushing to the airport. It's almost always an international flight. I don't want to go on and I don't have my passport and my bag isn't packed or it is and I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> or I get there and it springs open. Oh, no. Or I have to get rid of stuff because it's too heavy. It's a nightmare. When I have to go to the airport, that's the day. I really have. That's it. I've reached that point in my life oh, where I'm just like. So even if your flight's at like 4 p.m. Oh, no. I mean, if I have to give someone a ride to the airport, any airport activities, that's it. That's what you've done for the day. That's my outing for the day. Your heart rate has been up. That's your workout. That <laughs> So many people, so many factors out of, I mean, everything is out of our control. Yeah. But that's like extra super duper factors out of your control. Get out of here. You're sending your family member up into the heavens? <laughs> is that what you want permanently? Yeah, so you didn't dig Dorothy's like, oh, cool. Thanks, Rose, for taking her. Bye. Yeah. And also for Rose to just be like, here we go. I mean, that would shake me to my core if it was like I suddenly had to take someone to the airport. Like right now, I'd be so sad. <laughs> See, I'm totally opposite because I I appreciate that they touch on things like anxiety and mental health and stuff. But for the most part, they're a very cool group of ladies and things can just change and go. And that would totally be me. I'm sitting there like, oh, I have to take my dad to the airport, which I've done a million times for his job. It, yeah, if someone was like, oh, we got it, I'd be like, sweet. You're very adaptable with scheduling. <laughs> Thank you. 
Blanche isn't ready for Rose to leave as she wants to hear more about Dr. Jonathan Newman, her new fling. She not only wants to talk about him, she wants to know when they're going to meet him. Rose isn't sure as he's very busy with work, but promises it'll be soon. If we were not quarantined and you were in the dating world, how long did you wait to introduce people to people? Forever, if possible. (laughs) (laughs) I totally... Did you did you skip over? Like there are some that never met anybody? Yeah. <laughs> Dorothy sees Sophia off, reminding her to play nice with her daughter-in-law. Sophia attempts to compliment her, but basically says, I need to be nice to her because when her dad gets out of prison, she's going to be rich. I'm not sure how that correlation works, but I would like to get to know more about that backstory. Rose and Sophia head out for the airport, and with the transition of the moon over the house, we see it is another day, rather evening, out on the lanai. Rose is in an adorable gray and white wrap dress, while Blanche, well, I'll save getting into her outfit. Insert your own Blanche sex joke here. Blanche is following Rose to the table on the lanai as she sets down a tray of place settings. And I noticed today while we were watching, even though we don't see them at dinner, they still set up the table to be... TV friendly. So there's two people on one side and then one person on each end of the table, no one on the opposite side, which would have made a lot more sense, especially since we never see the meeting dinner. Blanche knows Rose is mad at her. She has the same tell as my own mom. When they get mad, the lips go away. The difference being Rose purses tightly and kind of makes a frown while my mom's lips just kind of get sucked up into her gums. If you ever encounter my mom and her lips are missing, run. Dorothy arrives inquiring about the arrival of Rose's lips. They're still not there. We get our purple in this scene from Dorothy, who is in a beautifully relaxed outfit for the evening. Flowy cream pants, flowy purple cover wrap thing. It's tucked into the top of her pants like that garbage bag one she wore a couple episodes back, but the oversized purpleness of this one really brings a whole new vibe. Although when she gets going with her arms, they do kind of look like little T-Rex arms, so that's a fun bonus. It had been a week since Rose had talked to the girls about Dr. Newman, and since she didn't invite him over to the house for dinner, you know, after only six weeks of dating, Blanche took it upon herself to do so when he called the house to talk to Rose, hence why Rose has the lip definition of a Muppet. Blanche is totally ignoring Rose's needs here. There could be so many reasons she didn't want him over. Maybe she knows it's not serious. Maybe he's one of those embarrassing guys. You know, the ones you hang out with and you have fun with, but you would never dream of introducing them to anyone you know. It really wasn't Blanche's place, and at the very least, she could apologize for stepping over what appears to have been an important boundary for Rose. Dorothy plays the middleman. Hey, it's happening. He's on his way. Let's just have a good night, even if the circumstances aren't ideal. Rose continues, she's fearful her friends will make him feel embarrassed. Why? What on earth could they do that would make him feel embarrassed? Blanche starts telling Dorothy how excited she is to meet Dr. Newman because even with their short phone conversation, he was able to analyze her dream. You know, her reoccurring nightmare of being chased on a train by a bodybuilder while she runs away naked. Shocker, that and all of Blanche's dreams are sexual. Okay, we're here. First off, let me clarify. 
What makes this scene so funny has nothing to do with Dr. Jonathan Newman being a little person. And yet another example as to why the Golden Girls are so enduring is that they find the humor in the less obvious places. While some shows would have made a joke about him being small or worse, done physical jokes, everything that is laughed at in this scene comes at the expense of Blanche. We have all been in this moment. We have all said the wrong thing or in an uncomfortable situation that we're trying to make more comfortable for others, we overthink it and make it worse. That is the true brilliance of this scene. By laughing at Blanche, we are basically laughing at ourselves and realizing we aren't alone in that deep, deep embarrassing experience. Most importantly here, Blanche's outfit. It is one of my favorites of all time because I'm a sucker for a jumpsuit. Hers is a bright, deep sky blue cinched at the waist with perfectly matching costume beaded necklaces. Her jewelry is perfect. Her outfit is perfect. Her timing is perfect. As she's finishing her sentence about how lucky she is to always dream about sex, she goes to answer the door after hearing the doorbell. Dorothy is perfectly placed in the chair facing the kitchen, so she doesn't see what Blanche does when she opens the door. But you would think if you had invited someone to dinner at that time, and it was now around that time, you'd be more excitable and ready to greet. Blanche opens the door wide, and before she can even process who she is talking to, she politely uses the trajectory of the door to slam it right back in the face of who she believes is one of the Donaldson boys, who were there to try to sell her a subscription to the local paper. Blanche keeps talking even while closing the door. Her body language here and use of the door, it's truly like a choreographed dance. As Dorothy gripes about those boys always hounding them about the paper and not taking no for an answer, we get an oh boy as Blanche giggles, neither can their father. Ew. Rose is in the kitchen finishing up dinner. Blanche is in the kitchen helping her to prepare as well. Dorothy is alone in the living room when the doorbell rings again. She answers it and is much more patient when it comes to listening as Dr. Newman learned from his first interaction he better introduce himself quickly, which he does, to which Dorothy asks... Are you absolutely sure? (laughs) Dr. Newman is played by actor Brent Collins. He is most known for his role as Dr. Jonathan Newman on The Golden Girls. Okay, maybe that's just me, but he also did some work with soap operas like Another World and As the World Turns, during which he was one of the main characters and got a lot of screen time. Sadly, Brent passed away at the age of 46 years old, just three years after his appearance on The Golden Girls. Interestingly enough, Brent was diagnosed with having dwarfism, but he also suffered from Marfan syndrome, a genetic condition that affects connective tissues and causes growth. His rapid growth in his mid-40s is actually what led to the heart attack that took Brent's life. I'm really sorry to have bummed you out with that. It's just an incredibly rare combo of dwarfism and Marfan syndrome, and Brent's story deserves to be told. As Dorothy realizes Dr. Newman is who he says he is, she offers for him to come in the house. Again, this is where the height jokes come in, but at Dorothy's expense this time, when she slips and asks if she can take his height instead of his hat. She's clearly uncomfortable and knows she's already said the wrong thing. A fun little moment in this scene, when she takes his hat, it kind of curls and crumples a little, and then when the shot changes to looking at Dorothy, the hat is in pristine condition. Then Blanche comes back in from the kitchen. Dorothy attempts to introduce her to Dr. Newman, which is quickly met with a get out of here and a giggle. Dorothy is clearly mortified at Blanche's response. This is the only moment in the scene that isn't perfect. 
I wish Blanche had said, but he's a little. Okay, let me clarify. In the scene, Blanche says, but he's a... And then Dorothy jumps onto what she was saying to say, a little early, yes. I just wish Blanche had gotten that little out to make it even more awkward. But if leaving that tiny moment means we get this take, then I'm happy. Dorothy continues attempting to introduce him to Blanche before Rose comes in from the kitchen. There's a twinkle in her eye as she greets Jonathan and approaches him with open arms. Jonathan compliments Rose, but before they can go any further, Blanche hops in with a, oh, wait a minute. Everything that happens now is perfection. Dorothy's hands are stressfully wrung. The four of them are standing between the couch and coffee table, so it feels like a play, but also like they're kind of trapped in the cringiness of it all. Blanche puts that jumpsuit to work by having her hands on her hips before making her way past Dorothy to be in between her and Rose. She claims she's figured it all out. That Rose is mad that Blanche invited her new beau over without asking, and as some sort of hire someone with a physical disability prank, she had whomever this man is come in Jonathan's place. Everything about that is so wrong, which is why it is so great. She couldn't have said more wrong or oh boy things, and she's just kind of stuck in it. As Blanche keeps unraveling the mystery, she begins to unravel. She gives Rose a fake punch-pinch to the shoulder before letting out the most uncomfortable, high-pitched giggle that, as Dorothy starts to say her name, Blanche, and she's looking at Rose's lipless face, she realizes she is very wrong and this is in fact Rose's date and she has now made him out to be some sort of freak for hire. Dorothy hangs her head in her hand. Rose sternly stares her down. Jonathan has a look of, is she for real? Blanche starts to panic as she has no one to turn to. Facing the audience as the horror of her mistake washes across her face, her giggle crescendos into my favorite moment. Say it with me now. God, I wish I was dead. Without an I'm so sorry or any kind of eye contact, Dorothy saves Blanche from the situation and reminds her they have food to get in the kitchen. Blanche hangs her head in shame as she makes her way far away from everything that just happened. Blanche enters the kitchen winded and worked up. While Dorothy was helpful getting her away from the living room, she has no problem agreeing with her when she points out that she's made a fool of herself. Instead of letting that incident dictate the whole night, Dorothy points out that Blanche needs to relax so they can all just enjoy themselves. This gives me a first runner-up for favorite moment. We're treated to a tight shot of Blanche from the shoulders up as she agrees with Dorothy. Of course, I have to be relaxed so my guest can be. Blanche starts to firmly whisper talk to herself as she pumps herself up, and when doing so, she oh so gently reaches up to her earring and starts to fiddle with it while saying, I can't allow him to feel ill at ease. And the more she fiddles and thinks and talks, the more her eyes start to flutter as she, in her best Southern Belle voice, realizes it would be unsouthern. Blanche is reinvigorated thanks to Dorothy's pep talk, and she asks her to grab the door so she can bring the food to her guest, her guest that she desperately wants to make feel comfortable. In another beautifully choreographed moment, Blanche kitten heel clicks her way from the kitchen into the living room, past the chair, towards the couch. Without stopping, she announces the appetizer. Shrimp! 
Her empowered strut quickly loses steam, and she, like a robot that is slowly breaking down, makes her way back to the kitchen, shaking her head in unbelievability. Now, here's a fun fact that might only apply to me. I have seen this scene a lot. I basically wrote all of this without actually watching it. Sorry to brag. And no, I can't do math or always remember where I park my car. Leave me alone. Anyway, to make sure I was getting all of the swear words and scenes that might be cut from Hulu or Hallmark, I bought the DVD set of the series. I then, of course, watched this episode and was flabbergasted when there was a joke I hadn't heard in probably 30 years. In the TV version, a.k.a. on Hallmark, that is where the scene ends and cuts to commercial, with Blanche stomping off in embarrassment. So imagine my delight when the scene didn't end there. In case you are a Hallmark watcher only, let me fill you in. After Blanche makes her shrimp escape, Jonathan, sitting on the couch with Rose, delights in the misery his appearance is clearly causing Blanche, saying, she's pretty uptight, I'm gonna have fun teasing her tonight. Dorothy, always to the rescue, says they should just move on to dinner. Jonathan is equally excited to eat and inquires what they're having. Dorothy at the kitchen door holds her composure a bit better than Blanche when she looks at the stove and realizes what they've cooked. She turns to him with a tight, uncomfortable face and says, short ribs, before slowly slinking into the kitchen. And you put it great, Coco, that it looked like she was closing her own casket door. <laughs> and that was your first time seeing that scene, correct? Yeah, that's the first time I've, yeah, I've ever Did seen it. Did it live up to the hype? I was so excited to force you to watch it. It was so funny. The The whole episode is like that. It's just uh, to this point of peak, I think. Yeah. It made me laugh really hard yeah, the whole you, episode. I was dying. You laughed out loud. Yeah. You guffawed. Multiple times. It was so great. Yeah. I, yeah. With the When she slammed the door in his face, it was like the first time you had the paper boy. Little, she called him little boy. Yes. That's what made me no, laugh No, thank first. you, little boy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah, I love it. And there's something about the jumpsuit because- I know, as a jumpsuit wearer, they're not the most flattering. They make your tummy stick out. They make you look like you got a big old butt and big hips, which can be great. Sometimes it doesn't work that great. And this one, even though Rue isn't very big chested, she has no boobs in it. And it's like, even though it's traditionally not flattering per se, yeah, how she wears it, like that is. Yeah, she looks hot. She's hot. Just she's hot. So it's hot. a hot outfit. She makes me want to have that outfit and she's is that the same outfit with the long necklaces yeah it's got yeah. the two ones like the same color and ones like the lighter mm -hmm. blue i like that yeah i wish you could see my late grandma's closet she had well multiple closets in their house that she used and it was the same thing it was like oh well i have a fuchsia jacket so i'll get my fuchsia pants and then i'll put on my plastic fuchsia jewelry and everything will just be <laughs> The same color gorgeous and, it, and somehow the monochromaticness of it worked so well my grandma was a little bit like that too they pick like one color yeah but it's the most garish color of, <laughs> of, of legally allowed <laughs> uh, yes that's really fun clearly the meal went great but i do have a rib bone to pick with rose i'm going to hope that it was due to her saint olafian naivete that she let the girls plan a dinner that clearly was themed around height or perhaps Rose was so mad about the unapproved invite that she requested shrimp and short ribs just to get even. Once again breaking the mold, the writers used Dr. Newman's height as a setup to laugh at the ladies. But here we are in the next scene and they are taking the opportunities 
to humanize a person that, when it came to being represented on television, wasn't exactly a world-traveling Harvard graduate with a master's in psychology. Inclusion, baby. You love to see it. As Dr. Newman shares the story of bumping into his college roommate while on a trip to Africa, Blanche gets another embarrassing moment by saying, small world, isn't it? But Jonathan and Blanche handle it with grace. Blanche acknowledges her mistake and apologizes while Jonathan doesn't confront or coddle her so that she doesn't feel bad. He's more like, get over it. I have. And it's my body and it doesn't bother me. It certainly shouldn't bother you, which is a great rule for everyone to live by. He continues to preach, saying everyone has something they wish they could change about themselves. The trick is getting beyond it and to being content with who you are. The whole time he is giving us this amazing life advice, Rose is staring at him, totally smitten. So much so, she gets goosebumps when he gets to talking. The happy couple looks adoringly at each other as Blanche offers to get coffee. But since she did dinner, Rose and Jonathan take it upon themselves to go do it. This leaves Dorothy and Blanche to discuss, oh my god, the perfect jumpsuit has bitchin' pockets. I must get this for the Golden Girls Cruise, setting sail January. Get your tickets now at goldenfansatsea.com. The ladies are chatting about Jonathan and how lovely the evening has been and how positive of a person he is. Blanche, still not sure how to talk without offending people, responds to Dorothy with a, and he's wearing the cutest little gray suit I've ever seen. That's a compliment, sure, but is it cute because it's a nice suit or because it's small? As Dorothy is shaking her head at Blanche, there's someone else at the door. It's an unexpected Sophia. Dorothy is shocked to see her mother come home, especially since she was supposed to be with Phil and his family for another week. Sophia came home early because there was no celebration to be had. Her grandson had failed grooming school. I'm not sure why she came home instead of getting a week with her son and 10 grandkids, but I'm guessing it has something to do with that six boys in one room situation. Sophia comes in looking so cute, like a little librarian hipster, a lace collar with cameo, of course, and floral shirt, a ruffle jacket, and I would wear every piece of it. Sophia's arrival caught the girls so off guard, they forgot to mention they were having a dinner guest, and that the guest was built in a way that Sophia would probably not have an issue with pointing out in a somehow even more embarrassing than Blanche way. That's why when Rose sees Sophia in the living room, her tone is that of shocked housewife whose husband came home early. There is awkward laughter from the audience as the ladies shuffle around the room, clearly uncomfortable as well. Dorothy introduces Dr. Newman to her mother, her mother that is only about five inches taller than Dr. Newman. Sophia approaches him and starts with a, I hope this doesn't sound rude, causing everyone to hold their breath. But then she's just a polite lady. She explains she's tired from her trip and she's going to bed. Guess that no filter from a stroke from the first episode isn't really a thing. But just when you think Sophia handled the interaction, she summons Dorothy to the hallway entrance. In hearing her tone, we wait again to see what she is going to say and just how bad it will be. Now, for 1985, this wasn't an oh boy at all. She asks if Jonathan was a little person. Dorothy confirms that he is, and Sophia says she's glad to know because she thought for a second she was having vision issues from another stroke. But that was then. Now, this does get an oh boy because she actually used the word midget, and I'm sorry to have even said that word. 
Midget was used for a long time as a blanket term for anyone with a shorter height, but it mostly was used for performers like at the circus, freak shows, and in wrestling. This making it a thus making it a derogatory term that is no longer used. Instead, if you are referring to someone that is shorter in stature, you would use the term little person. After his interaction with Sophia, Jonathan realizes how late it is, and he bails on the coffee he and Rose started. They all finish their after-dinner drink in their cordial glass and say their farewells. Rose's farewell being that she'll see him at work tomorrow. Attention, attention. Do not, I repeat, do not hook up with people at work. Don't poo where you eat. It only gets messy and awful. Well, usually. Before Rose can close the door on the evening, Jonathan asks if they can grab dinner after work the next night because he wants to talk to her about something important. Rose closes the door with a swoon, and after asking the ladies what they thought about Jonathan, both Dorothy and Blanche giving him a rave review, Rose is delighted to hear because she is pretty sure that the dinner conversation will be about getting married. Attention, attention, do not, I repeat, do not plan on a dinner conversation being about getting married if you have not talked about it and have only been dating for six weeks. While the ladies enjoy Jonathan's company, Blanche is clearly shocked as you could hear her drop the tray of dishes in the kitchen when she heard Rose's prediction. Dorothy wants to know why Rose would feel this way. She says it's because he has mentioned wanting to get married and that their relationship is going really well and he wanted to go to dinner. You know, really reasonable stuff like that. Seeing as how fast the relationship is going, the girls push the conversation, asking how she feels about it. Rose admits she doesn't even think about his height when they're alone, but when they're around other people, she can feel the stares and judgment. Dorothy catches Blanche with a not a word right before she responds to Rose's how big a man is shouldn't make or break a relationship. Dorothy is once again totally right. Maybe that's why I'm always relating to her so much. When she says it's Rose and Jonathan's relationship and they are the ones that need to figure out if the issues they have are going to make or break them. We have Sophia's Picture It and Rose's Back in St. Olaf, but there really should be a story starter for Blanche. She tells just as many meaningless, nonsense, self-satisfying stories as the rest of them. Speaking of, this whole situation has her feeling empathetic as she once dealt with the judgment of others in a relationship as well. As Blanche starts to tell of a high school love, she implies that because of the time in the South and the forbidden mixing, she dated a black man. It's a powerful story that makes Blanche sound like a progressive rebel willing to get in trouble just to do what was right. But no, that wasn't the case. She had gone to the prom with a Yankee. For anyone outside of the states, a Yankee is someone that was from the northern states, not the southern Confederate ones. And yes, people in the South are still hung up about that whole civil war, not getting to have slaves, Yankees are the devil business. Dorothy gives a perfect overreaction to how silly Blanche's story was. She's incensed that they made a movie about that Gandhi guy and not the plight of Blanche and her Yankee date. Gandhi, the movie, was released in 1982 and starred Sir Ben Kingsley as the titular Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi was an Indian activist and did a lot of amazing things like freeing India from British colonizers. As to whether he was a deadbeat, well, he had some writings from when he was young that were super racist, and he had some issues around sexuality, like proving how devout he was to his celibacy by sleeping nude with his grandniece. So, you know, 
Oh, boy. Rose meanders to her bedroom via a harsh edit that really upset Coco. Ow. (laughs) That's a Coco owie. This is another scene that is actually cut from the Hallmark airing. Rose goes to leave the kitchen and the girls start to follow her. But as she's kind of out the kitchen door, she's also opening her bedroom door is the cut. And yeah, so that whole part is cut. So they kind of finish the story at the table and then it cuts to Rose being on her bed. But that's not the actual version of it. My God. I know. Bum, bum, bum. So in this moment, the ladies follow her and they join her to give advice that she should just sleep on her concerns and she'll come to a conclusion. As Blanche and Dorothy leave Rose to get some rest, Dorothy is still struck by Blanche's ridiculous story. She openly mocks her, and I don't know that Blanche gets it. Dorothy says Blanche's tale of dating a Yankee is a real profile in Courage, which was a book written by, well, partially, enough so that he actually got a Pulitzer Prize for, Senator at the time, John F. Kennedy. The book tells the stories of different senators that went against their party lines to do what was right. So basically, Blanche's tale of woe. Rose lays down on her bed, fully dressed, including her heels, which is like, okay, we see how fabulous you are. On the other hand, you have work in the morning. He was over for dinner, drinks, and almost coffee, so it isn't exactly early evening. Just put on some lacy and comfortable pajamas like the rest of the house. As Rose dozes off, we get our first dream sequence of the series. Zooming into Rose's face, we pull back to reveal she's now in a wedding dress. I love her dream portrayal of Dorothy. She comes in springing through the door, peppier than we've ever seen her, cheering for Rose to wake up in a sing-song voice. Meanwhile, Blanche is speaking like a really sassy robot. Rose explains that she isn't sure if she can go through with the wedding. The dream one to Jonathan, of course. Rose explains that Jonathan is so much shorter than her, and everywhere they go, people stare. Dream Blanche and Dorothy say, they're staring at you. Blanche clarifying, saying it's her hair dye bringing the unwanted attention, which hasn't been around since they discontinued the Ford Falcon, a cute and average-looking car that was made from 1959 to 1970. I actually never noticed until this viewing that when Blanche delivers that burn, Dorothy doesn't make an audible laugh. She opens her mouth wide and looks like she's laughing while silently moving her hands from above her head to in front of her face to in front of her chest like some sort of haunted jazzercise move. Sophia appears out of a closet, or perhaps it's just a spare bathroom, dressed as a Roman Catholic clergy person, complete with a black Beretta hat, a white cassock cover, and a white stole draping her neck. She is ready to officiate. Coco, have you ever officiated a wedding? I sure have. I officiated my sister, uh, my first best friend, <laughs> Amy, my sister's wedding. Yeah. Um, How was it for you? I killed. <laughs> and it was, I was really scared to do it. And I ended up writing most of the speech the, the day of. And it, it really, it, had a, it was a great response and I was really happy to do it. And it was like one of the first times I was kind of like in front of people trying to get laughs. Oh. And that was fun too. Um, but yeah, they, they loved it. I, I put the lyrics to "Everything I Do, I Do It for You" by Brian Adams oh. into their into my speech and had them had the the 
my sister and her, her husband recite those words to each other. And Did they care beforehand? Like, were they all up in your business about what they wanted it to say? Zero. No, my sister is like always with me. She's like, do whatever you want. Right. She trusts me. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. Did I they loved get a it. kick out of that? Oh, they loved it because they didn't know what it was at first. Yeah, they didn't right. know what the words were. And then and then everyone in the audience kind of were figured you like, it out Were like, look too. into my eyes. Yes. You will see. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it was, it was a great experience. You'll see. There's nothing mm. That's a great song. Uh, one of my faves. You know that. Rose fights against her dream girls, saying she's not ready to get married because she's just not sure. The girls push back until out of the closet comes Rose's dream dad. Dream as in this scenario is a dream. We all know Bob Hope is the real dream dad. Now, we never meet Rose's adopted dad as he is deceased, so it's very possible that this is actually him, which would explain why Rose is so open-minded and caring. She's watched her father deal with discrimination and bullying, and instead of becoming angry, Rose remains loving and warm. Playing Edgar Lindstrom is the prolific Billy Barty. Born in 1924 and passing away in 2000, Billy had over 200 credits to his name. I guess that's what happens when you start working at age three. Besides Golden Girls, Billy worked with Shirley Temple, Mickey Rooney, a.k.a. the sleazeball gangster Rocco, and had roles on The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Little House on the Prairie, and in the film Willow. He also provided voices for The Gummy Bears and The Rescuers, to name literally just a few of his many roles. You were so excited to see him pop out of that closet door thing. Billy Barty, I know from Willow, of course. UHF, he got to co-star with... Uh, Weird Al Yankovic, That's right. so cool. And then he was in the uh, the film version of Masters of the Universe, the He-Man movie, that I saw when I was a boy. And even as a boy, I was like, "This is not a good movie. This is not. <laughs> this is not the He-Man experience I've been craving." Well, so much for Rose being kind because she had a father that struggled. She admits that she's dreaming of her dad as a little person to make the point that it's about the person, not their height. At least that's the point Blanche makes while Sing talking to Rose like some sort of nightmare fairy godmother. Billy joins in on the point making, telling Rose to follow her heart because no one can predict the future. That is, except for renowned psychic Jean Dixon. Jean Dixon was a self-proclaimed psychic who was also very religious, claiming her skill came from God. While she did have some accurate predictions, such as JFK's assassination, many years before he was even in office, she had many more not-as-accurate predictions. But her column and books were important to both President Nixon and Mrs. Reagan. In a haunting prediction, she said in 1971 that a War of Armageddon would occur in 2020. Maybe it wasn't Armageddon, but it sure sucked and felt like a form of war. While her books were bestsellers and she was hugely popular, she wasn't without scandal. Someone that had sent her a manuscript realized she then turned it into a book. The original writer sued and won 5% royalties. Additionally, there have been studies of her work, and there is now the term Jean Dixon for psychics, meaning a few accurate predictions cancel out that most of them have been wrong. It's not really a complimentary term. So yes, this psychic storming into the room awkwardly and obviously as a non-actor is indeed a famous psychic, as if the outfit wasn't enough of a clue. 
In Rose's dream, the prediction is that Brooke Shields and Lady Di, a.k.a. Princess Diana, both ladies being mentioned in previous episodes, were going to star in a Broadway comedy. That didn't happen. Then she starts with, Senator Edward Kennedy will once again run... Now, this was Ted Kennedy, so there's no telling if she was going to finish that sentence with run for president like he did in 1980 or run another car off a bridge and kill a young girl. Luckily, he didn't do either that we know of. And what's interesting here is Rose is dreaming about these predictions. So these are actually Rose's predictions. Whoa. When Rose asks Jean to be more specific about her future, Jean has nothing and is escorted out of the room. Jonathan then appears out of another door, perhaps that one actually is the bathroom, and is in his white suit ready to get married. Rose wants to talk to him, but everyone is still in the room eavesdropping. As Rose opens up and shares her hesitation, Jonathan points out that if they care for one another, no problem is too big to overcome. Blanche and Dorothy hear Rose in her dream, crying out, yes, yes, and rush in to wake her. Luckily, they are dressed in comfortable and cute pajamas. And luckily, Rose is dreaming about Jonathan and deciding to get married and not another dream that you wouldn't really want your roommates to come barging in during. I don't think if I heard a roommate sleeping and going, yes, yes, that I'd be like, better barge in and make sure they're okay. I'd be like, good for you. Speaking of dreams, the first time I had sleep paralysis, I was watching The Golden Girls. Picture it. Vancouver, Washington, 2009. Working at a school at that time, it was summer, so I was off and I had a routine. Wake up around 8, watch an episode or two of The Girls on Hallmark, doze off for a morning nap, wake up at the end of the morning marathon around 10, and watch Price is Right while I actually got ready for my day. Only this day, it was really hot. The window was open, the shade was a little weird, letting a lot of sun in. The girls were on, and I fell asleep. Then I woke up. Only I couldn't move. I couldn't even get my eyelids to open. I was totally frozen. I could feel the sun coming in from the window, and I could hear the girls on the TV, and I could see the figure of a man in a hat at my bedroom door. This was it, I thought to myself. Someone snuck in, they slipped me something, now I can't move, and they're going to hurt me. I tried to yell, I tried to move, nothing. Then I focused on the girls. I could picture the episode. I could hear their voices. And then as fast as it had set in, boom, it was gone. I sprung up ready to fight, but realized there was no one actually there. I learned later that hallucinations of figures is very common in sleep paralysis. So once again, the girls were there for me when I needed them, waking me from my dream, just as Blanche and Dorothy did for Rose. Rose has decided that Dream Jonathan was right. They can overcome anything as long as they care for each other. Sophia hears the ruckus and comes into the room. Blanche tells her the good news that Rose is going to keep seeing Jonathan. Sophia doesn't care, but does point to the oversized pillow Rose is holding and says, we're adults here, he can stay over. You don't have to hide him in a pillowcase. While that feels like more of a joke towards the comically huge pillow Rose is in, I'm still going to give it an oh boy as it comes at the expense of Jonathan. The ladies awkwardly look around as we transition to the next night where we join Jonathan and Rose at a French restaurant for dinner. Feeling worldly, Rose asks Jonathan what he had. It was the trout. He takes a guess as to what it's called in French when Rose asks, saying, le trout. 
But sorry, Dr. Mann, it's actually tre. Beautiful. It's T-R-U-I-T-E, but it's like tre, tree, basically. Ah, French. Rose continues to revel in the company, scenery, and romance. Jonathan starts what sounds like a serious conversation. They've been dating for only a short time, but he knows things are feeling serious. But to be able to be serious, they each need to fully accept themselves for who they are, and he's not sure that that can happen. Rose assumes he means she could never accept being with a little person. Based on that assumption, she starts to defend herself. No, no, she can love him even if he is little. They'll make it work no matter what. As she says, it doesn't bother me that you're small, Jonathan makes the most classic face. He's confused, maybe a hint of offended, and totally caught off guard. Well, the tables have turned in many ways. This is not an engagement dinner. This is a breakup dinner. He has realized things have gotten too serious, and he just can't be with someone that isn't Jewish. In this moment, we get a wider shot as Rose processes the information, turning sharply away like a lost bird. She is pissed. Now, here we get so many oh boys because Rose is mad and she's not going to take it. If this situation wasn't about height, it would be the most relatable. You know, when the person you're seeing has some sort of quirk or behavior that might be a deal breaker for you and you agonize over what the right thing is to do, but then they're like, this isn't going to work. It's fair for Rose to say, who the hell do you think you are dumping me? But she goes too far when Jonathan says people are looking at her as she starts to create a scene in the restaurant and she yells, they're staring at you. Oh, bully boy. Jonathan, after a lifetime of comments like that, hits back with, I'm used to it. I'm a snappy dresser. And that joke breaks the tension. They both realize how silly and emotional they got, but quickly calm down and are able to say how much they've appreciated their time together. But it's just not going to work. But, you know, they'll still get to work with each other every day. When the waiter, played by Tony Carrero, who has had a pretty steady career over the last 30 years, including roles on Empty Nest, the show, not the episode, Frasier, and the film Liar Liar, comes to the table to ask how the shrimp was, we learn through euphemism that even in their six weeks together and Rose being ready for marriage, they never took the relationship to the bedroom. Now that would have been some representation. The former couple holds hands and look at each other longingly, although Rose still kind of has that angry, no-lipped frown going on, so she's probably still pretty pissed. No matter the person's height, weight, yankiness, or religion, there are obstacles in every relationship. What matters is sharing those concerns with your partner and having an open and honest conversation with them about what fears you may have moving forward. It's also important to talk to yourself about that. If there's something in a relationship, be it a red flag or just a lifestyle difference, figure out what you are comfortable with. And if you do all of that and realize, hey, they aren't Jewish, so I can't be with them, have that conversation with your partner ASAP. Maybe there will be a solution. Maybe there won't. But at least you aren't wasting anyone's time. Also, don't make fun of people just because of a physical difference. That's just mean. Until next time, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week for the episode That Was No Lady, where we discuss the torrid affair Dorothy has with her married co-worker. 
Today's golden goodie comes from ChicaAndJoe.com, a website that has everything. From best friends Chica and Joe, you'll find adorable Golden Girls party printables, including one for a cheesecake bar and a Golden Girls sticker. Besides the girls, you'll find all sorts of fun, easy, and helpful decoration ideas, recipes, and so much more. So follow Chica and Joe on Instagram and Pinterest, not just because they have so many delightful products and ideas, but also because there might be a Golden Girl sticker giveaway happening very soon that you don't want to miss. That's C-H-I-C-A and J-O, ChicaandJoe.com. which is a Neapolitan song from 1898. H. Accidental Innovations. <laughs> Accidental Innovations. Elizabeth Arden. Water is the essence of moisture. I hate him. I hate him. He's so cool-seeming. Yes. And I hate him for it. I don't know about that theory. How has that worked out for you? I mean, pretty good, because I don't care. <laughs> It's just like the absence of anything. It's just like forces everyone to like <laughs> carry you like something with no bones. <laughs> that was just for um, just for a good time, not a long time. It wasn't that good. <laughs> Unpleasantville. <laughs> the 2020 story. Our pandemic story, yeah. <laughs> Unpleasantville. <laughs> I'm thinking he's the oldest boy. I mean, maybe they have a 30-year-old son that lives at home. And he's the youngest boy in the room of six boys. Please, please let it be true that he is the (laughs) oldest possible boy. I'm sure there's like a family tree that someone has created on a website somewhere that has all the kids in their order. But yeah, yeah, I'm going to really hope. I'm going to really hope he's the oldest. Do we need to cancel Tootsie Rolls because their little pieces are called midges? Thank you. Canceled. Canceled. What should they be called? Um, Just minis. Tootsie Roll mini. Brown. <laughs> nope. Juniors. <laughs> Listen, uh, I'll meet you out front. I got to hit the bathroom and drop off some brown juniors if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the The idea of people in power... Consulting psychics. Isn't that upsetting? Nancy Reagan. I yeah, swear to God, dude. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about what why is why are why are we looking for Carmen San Diego? What has she done? <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.